This week's TribCast is sponsored by Raise Your Hand Texas. Raise Your Hand Texas is strengthening public education for the future because the future of Texas is in our public schools. Find out more at raiseyourhandtexas.org. And Texas Macomb School of Business. Join us for Texas Macomb's Presents, a free monthly virtual event series with UT Austin faculty and industry leaders. More at macombspresents.macombs.utexas.edu. Hello, and welcome to the August 19th edition of the Texas Tribune TribCast. This is Alexa Uda. I'm joined this week by politics reporter Alex Samuels. Howdy. Hello. Ooh, stealing the howdy from Ross, executive editor Ross Ramsey. Moving in on my turf. Howdy yourself. (laughs) (laughs) And managing editor Matthew Watkins. Hello. I would like to say for the record that it turns out all it took was for me to be gone for one week for Matthew to full Aggie out on this trip cast and make it all about football. Let the record show. It's funny you say that because I have always wanted to my introduction to be howdy as an Aggie, but I have been respectful of Ross since he's been using it before me. So uh, I haven't done it. Ross didn't use it last week, which is why I stole it. She well, I, yeah, because we had to say something about football. She moved in <laughs> on my turf. All right. Well, there will hopefully be no football talk this week. Um, though I guess we are technically talking about the convention and Colin Allred, so a little bit of <laughs> football talk in the adjacent. Um, but let's start more broadly with the convention. There's been a lot of chatter about the lack of standout spots for Texans during the Democratic National Convention, a little bit more so about Julian Castro not being in there and a little less so for Beto O'Rourke, I must say. (laughs) But Alex, set this up for us. You know, what were the expectations among Democrats going into the convention? And what is the logic for how convention involvement may or may not signal anything about the DNC's commitment to Texas? Yeah, so I think going into the convention, Democrats from Texas thought they would have a much bigger voice than they actually did. Of course, they're trying to tout the state as both a swing state, uh, you know, heading into November. So the fact that not many Texans were, or no Texans were given primetime speaking spots, um, a lot of state party Democrats or down ballot Democrats were a little miffed by that, to say the least. Um, But that being said, you know, you did have Texans speak in one form or another. You know, Philemon Vela, he sent in a 30-minute clip. Uh, Colin Allred, Victoria Niave were part of two of 17 rising stars nationally in the party. Um, Veronica Escobar, uh, Beto O'Rourke, you know, so Texans were there. Eva Longoria, Um, he's from Texas. Right, right. the most prominent Texan. The best known of the bunch, right? I need to definitely answer Texas. But you know, so you you did have Texans there, but the fact is that they weren't given these like primetime speaking slots. So some people were pissed off about that. But then you have to throw into consideration, you know, it's a virtual convention. It's two hours every night for four four nights. I mean, if we had given all these Texans, like, five minutes to speak, like, in the words of Philemon Vela, like, that would have been boring as hell. 
So I love that. You know, I love like, that line in your story. That was great. <laughs> as as opposed to the convention now, which is riveting and exciting. I know. For all. I right. know. Now it's like, I can't take my, I can't take my eyes off the TV, but um, <laughs> really. <laughs> I love some but, self-awareness though. That is, that is amazing. <laughs> um, but I think on the DNC's end, I don't think it means that they're not committed to Texas. I think what, uh, Abby Livingston and I are, you know, the D.C. Bureau Chief, what we talked about in a previous story is that there are states that Biden is is in a stronger position to win, that Trump won in 2016, like Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Arizona, et cetera. Um, Because Texas is so big and so expensive, it's hard to imagine um, a scenario where Texas would flip when it would be anything more than icing on the cake on a broader national victory. You don't technically need Texas to get to the 270. So I don't think it's that they're not investing in Texas. It's just not maybe on their top priority list. If they get to the point where they're spending money and really focusing on competing in Texas, that's an indication that they've got the rest of the country already locked up. It's one of the most expensive places to campaign. They can do it without Texas. If they get to Texas and decide to keep going for it, it's, you know, Fernando Tatis Jr., they're just going for a grand slam when they've already won the game. (laughs) That was for you, Matthew. There's no way Alex and Alexa understood that reference. No. Nope. <laughs> no, I We're talking about baseball instead of football. <laughs> I also oh, think that there should maybe be a little bit of in- introspection among the Texas Democrats as to why this happened. And maybe it's less about the fact that the National Party doesn't care about Texas and more about the fact that the kind of top tier Democrats in this state have in some ways kind of squandered their opportunities, you know, uh, uh, Julian Castro was the keynote speaker in 2012 uh, uh, at the DNC convention. And he, I think people have kind of looked at him for a long time to be kind of the leader of the Democratic Party. He's, he's never ended up running for state office. His presidential campaign never really got off the ground. Um, you know, maybe there's a reason he wasn't selected. And then you've got Beto, who was, you know, briefly kind of the superstar of the Democratic Party and, you know, crashed and burned there. I mean, uh, you know, I don't think that either of those two politicians are just obvious slam dunks. These are people who should be, you know, speaking in a primetime convention right now. I, I'm not sure. I'd, you know, I'd be interested in going down the list. I mean, do you think they should replace Michelle Obama? Do you think they should replace you know, a bunch of the other people on there? Get rid of their, Eva Longoria. Their, their ability to excite people nationally is just not what it might have been or what people thought it might have been when they were kind of on their rise. You know, one thing that we did kind of see from this is there are some some people kind of, you know, lower tier, you know, more newer to the scene Democrats in Texas that have gotten a few moments, whether it's Lena Hidalgo or... Um, Colin Allred, our football player, or uh, Victoria Niave. And so so maybe this is an opportunity to showcase that, you know, there's some other people coming up in the state as opposed to, to putting uh, these two people that Texans a lot of times want to turn to as kind of the star Democrats. I, it's also I an say, you said they're old news. <laughs> 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 I mean, Lena Hidalgo is very much not old news, but she got like... 10 seconds in yeah. the We the People montage, right? Like, it's not necessarily, you know, involvement even. I mean, I, I was I was watching the, the, like, new version of this keynote speech with Colin Allred and Victoria Niave, and I was trying to think, you know, maybe the sort of keynote platform for Julian Castro did not end up playing out the way it might have for a Barack Obama, but 
you know, I do remember going out to California while writing about his presidential campaign and talking to voters who traced their support for him in the primary back to that convention speech, right? Like there were voters outside of Texas for whom that speech had actually drawn their attention. And, you know, whether obviously that didn't work out for him in the end in terms of the same trajectory, maybe that other folks have gotten from those keynote speeches. But do we think there's going to be an upswing here for someone like Allred or for someone like Niave? It wasn't quite the typical keynote, right? They were sort of in a larger group of kind of what they're calling rising stars. And, you know, maybe they get some local coverage about, you know, local state rep as part of the keynote. But what's the upswing here for them? What what do we anticipate could be the platform that they could gain from this, if any? My guess is that it's less about, like, the voters. And, you know, I, I'm not sure a lot of just the general public who's watching that is going to remember who Colin Allred or Victoria Niave are a week from now, you know. But I think maybe where it does benefit is it's just kind of a badge of honor for the party and for people like us, you know. And now we see, like, okay, these two got selected as rising stars. And this is someone we should be keeping an eye on and thinking about moving forward, which which might kind of have its benefits, you know, if, if they ever do want to kind of run for higher office than the, what they are in right now. Yeah, I think I mean, they were just trying to get a platform. This is like, you know, I, I got a solo at summer band camp or something. Nobody notices but the other players. <laughs> I mean, you know, and you can't name the test of this is you can't sit here unless you're a real nerd and name the other states that were represented, for example, in that opening montage thing. Um, you know, it's important to the to the people that are that want a stage, it's not as important to the audience. And and the purpose of the convention is to run a four-day commercial. It's like a four-day commercial with punditry. And, you know, that's really all it is. And from a from an audience standpoint, this convention isn't really a ton different from what you see in a normal year. That's really every year it's just a TV show. It's different to political journalists who might get to go to the thing. It's different for delegates who might get to, get to go to the thing. But really, from an audience standpoint, they're running a four-day commercial, and they've very carefully programmed it to get as many votes as they can for their party. And, you know, it's not going to matter whether this or that Texan or this or that Michigander is in the, in the picture or not. Yeah, so piggybacking off of what Matthew said, I'm not, I'm not sure if Victoria Niave and Colin Alred's, you know, very short 30-second speeches will do for them what it did for Julian Castro in... 2012. Um, I'll be the first to admit that I did not watch Julian Castro's 2012 speech. I'm pretty sure I was like a junior in college or in high school. Um, all right, but, all right. <laughs> she waited. Okay, she she waited for all of our reactions there. I could be storming out any second now. <laughs> <laughs> okay, before we move on, we've got two more sponsors to go to. The Poinsett Firm is an Austin-based lobby firm guiding businesses in solving their high-stakes problems at the Texas Capitol. Learn more at poinsett.co. And Methodist Healthcare Ministries is dedicated to creating access to healthcare for uninsured and low-income families in South Texas through healthcare services, advocacy, and strategic grant making. Learn more at mhm.org. So let's talk about the big three press conference from yesterday. Governor Greg Abbott, Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick, and outgoing House Speaker Dennis Bonin got together in Fort Worth to open up basically the latest front in this local control fight. 
this time announcing they want to freeze property tax revenues for cities that cut police budgets amid calls for defunding the police. They indicated this would be through a legislative push when the legislature reconvenes in 2021, a, a point at which Dennis Bonin won't actually be there anymore. Uh, but Ross, speak property tax revenue to me. How is this supposed to work or is this more so politics? I think this is politics. There's two uh, huge holes in the idea, unless they flesh it out in some other ways. Uh, one of them is if the state tells local governments that their property taxes can't go up, then the state is effectively setting a locally a local property tax rate, which is unconstitutional. And the courts have ruled on this in school finance cases. So the state doesn't really have the ability to just put a flat cap on stuff. And then one of the people that's been, you know, sort of railing about the governor's executive orders and expansive actions is Matt Rinaldi, the former uh, state representative from uh, Northeast Tarrant County. And he put, he's a lawyer, and he, he tweeted yesterday, so if I want to get my local government to freeze my property taxes forever, all I got to do is cut a dollar out of the police budget? Is that really what they wanted to do with this thing? Um, which, you know, is, is interesting and funny and also a hole in what they proposed yesterday. So they're going to have to flesh this out in some real ways. They're also going to be in a position where, you know, if a city decides that it doesn't need as much police and wants to concentrate you know, it's funding on things like fire department or parks or libraries or whatever the heck it wants to do. The state removes that um, tool from their toolbox. And, you know, um, I think they're going to have, you know, I think it's a world of lawsuits. Uh, but I think really what they're going for here is they wanted to have a show of, you know, political energy against efforts like the one in Austin to defund police or to move things out of the police budget into other budgets. Yeah, I think there's little doubt that the big three, you know, Abbott in particular, are pretty opposed to the uh, defund the police movement. And that's, you know, a, a sincerely held belief that they have. Uh, I also think that you just look at how this all was unrolled and it's hard to not see, you know, some political motivations and at least how they brought this to the public. You know, we haven't seen any other kind of press conferences this far ahead of the legislative session when we don't even know who the speaker of the house is going to be we don't even know you know who's in charge of that chamber and we clearly like as you said ross there are a lot of things that need to be ironed out around this bill but also then at the same time this was something that happened in austin but they went up to fort worth to hold the press conference um they did it, you know, with uh, Craig Goldman, you know, one of the members of the Texas House. I mean, you know, one of the immediate things I thought about when I saw this was just the effort to, you know, hold back Democrats who are trying to flip the House. And, you know, as we know, as we've talked about a lot in this time, um, that battle is going to be fought in the suburbs. That battle in, in many ways is going to be fought um, among people who are... Um, you know, maybe have historically voted Republican and um, have maybe grown uncomfortable with the direction of the Republican Party, grown uncomfortable with Donald Trump, grown uncomfortable with how the state is responding to the coronavirus, grown uncomfortable with how schools are opening right now. And this is a really kind of nice subject 
I think that the Republicans would really like to have the candidates in those races talking about right now the the whether or not we should be defunding police, you know, or uh, you know, even abolishing police departments. You know, if, if that's the conversation Republicans are having right now, I think they would like to win, or you know, they feel like they're going to win that argument, especially in these districts that are the most important. Uh, it was pointed out yesterday uh, in kind of our internal Slack conversations about this to look at the Democrats' response to this, the statement that they put out. Uh, the um, uh, Texas Democratic Party spokesman put out a statement not long after this. Uh, a paragraph statement, Governor Abbott's distraction doesn't take away from his mismanagement of the coronavirus was the first sentence. And then the statement continued to talk solely about the coronavirus. The word police was not in it the substance of this proposal was not in it. So I think, you know, I think the Democrats are also aware that this is kind of an issue where they're, they're looking to change the, the subject and they're going to try really hard not to allow the Republicans to change the subject on this issue, on this right now. I'm curious, did anyone in the big three say which lawmakers are going to actually file this legislation or were they just like, hey, we're pushing for it? Because if you don't know who the Speaker of the House is going to be and if the House flips, that definitely throws a wrench in Republicans' plans for any of this. I don't think they're going to acknowledge that possibility publicly until the votes are counted. Yeah, I you mean, know, I, I think... I, there's no reason for them to talk about that. Yeah, the, mm-hmm. the thing that I, that I was thinking about after this press conference in terms of looking ahead to 2021, you know, if you're a member of the Legislative Black Caucus trying to pass reform to address or respond to what happened to George Floyd. Like, where does this leave you, right? You know, just last week, they unveiled these provisions that they would include in a possible George Floyd Act, things like banning chokeholds, but also, you know, reviving other reforms that had previously failed with police union opposition. At the same time, you've got Dan Patrick saying that the defunding legislation that was talked about yesterday will be a priority in the Senate particularly if the house flips, I can't see this working out productively on any front moving ahead to 2021. I think whether or not the house flips, we're starting to see that among all the other chaotic, you know, really contentious things that are going to be coming up in the legislative session, that this question of police reform is going to be another one of them, you know, let's just, let's say Republicans hold on to the house, have a a fairly small margin. You know, there's going to be a very strong push by Democrats in the House to push through police reform that isn't just kind of by name only. You know, it isn't, you know, what their, the complaint was about the Sandra Bland Act a few years ago, which was that, you know, it basically got defanged of all the things that the people who were originally pushing for it wanted. But then it just kept the name the Sandra Bland Act, which, you know, allowed people to kind of say we passed, uh, you know, reforms after after this happened. Uh, and so, you know, but then on the other side of the Capitol, you're going to, we know for a fact that we're going to have Dan Patrick over there and, and we know his feelings about policing and we know that he's likely going to be resistant to a lot of the things that the Democrats are going to be pushing for. So, um, I, I think no matter how the house turns up, it's, that's, there's going to be a lot of kind of a standoff on this. I think it's probably safe to assume, uh, uh come 2021. Yeah. All right. Well, we've only got a few more minutes left. And and with those last few minutes, I did want to talk about uh, the U.S. Postal Service and the concerns that have come to the forefront uh, after last week when 
the president said that he didn't want congressional funding to go toward the beleaguered USPS because it was needed to make the post office work for voting by mail in the fall. You know, obviously there is the voter suppression component of this, particularly among younger voters and voters of color. We're going to talk about that. We might run out of time today to talk about it, but this is not the last time we will be talking about it. But I did want to stop just for a second to talk about who votes by mail in Texas, because anyone who is 65 or older can vote by mail. In a lot of counties, most of the people voting by mail are 65 plus folks. That's quite a few Republican voters, some of whom could be living in competitive districts, some of whom, even if the post office is fine, might not trust the system, given these remarks coming from, you know, the standard bearer of their party. How does this make sense for Republicans Republicans politically going into November? <laughs> they're, betting, they're, betting oh that they, they're betting that they... they um, prevent more votes against them than they gain. I mean, you know, obviously they, they think that the, you know, that the over 65 votes are kind of in the can and, you know, um, that the, that the postal service can handle those. But, you know, a lot of this is, I think that they're throwing up dust about the idea of, of, uh, voting by mail. And, you know, I think uncertainty is more the goal here than the actual, you know, change of the electorate. Yeah, you know, I think also the people who are the most experienced voting by mail are, I think, judging from the demographics, more likely to be Republican, right? I mean, we we know kind of through polling, exit polls and things like that, that people under 65 are pretty overwhelmingly Republican in this uh, state. And a lot of those people maybe have done it before or already know how to do it. And there's going to be a little bit less confusion for them as they go through this process. Whereas if you're someone who um, is kind of new to this in some way, and you're hearing all this stuff about how the postal service is a mess, and you're hearing all this stuff about how state leaders are going to, you know, are, are really opposed to this and, and are looking to, you know, be pursuing, you know, fraud and, and vote by mail, and you've never done it before, you're not exactly sure how the process works. It might be kind of a deterrent to you to, to, to try it out. So the, there might be some of an aspect there. I mean, how does it play out uh, uh, politically? I, yeah, I think it would definitely hurt Republicans if if a bunch of mail-in ballots didn't make it to the counties, though, before, um, before you know, they, before they could be counted, or, you know, in, in time to be counted, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I, I do also want to talk about who the system is built for, right? Because we live in a state where the voting rules are not drawn equally, whether that's intentional or not. And courts many times have found it to be intentional. And the reality is that given our eligibility rules for voting by mail, opening up voting by mail to more voters in the state, particularly when it comes to age by age, that means opening up voting by mail to more voters of color, right? Like that's just demographics and how the share of Hispanic voters in particular falls the higher you get into some of these age group categories. And so I, I think it's it's one of those things where we have for many years been trying to measure voter suppression in the state, right? Or the effect of laws that affect certain voters differently than others. And this is, this is, a part of the voting process that is now extending into the mechanisms that make voting possible that are not controlled by the state or by the counties. And it just seems like the uncertainty 
would harm both parties equally. It would harm, you know, I don't know that we have numbers to show how many, what the margin for victory is if you take mail-in voters in rural communities that for so long have been like a Republican firewall who also may be worst off if there are interruptions in the mail. You know, they're sort of, I don't know that anybody has crunched the numbers. I know we have not. But it just seems like so often we are dealing with voting rules that are not drawn equally. And this is something that is even above the voting rules. It's the system that actually makes this work. And it's actually one of those things that could, that doesn't just hurt the voters that might vote for the other guys, right? It's one that actually could hurt the voters that Republicans need and that could make the difference in so many of these seats where we're going to be waiting until days after the election for all of the mail-in votes to come in and for them to be counted. Well, and I hate to sound hopelessly naive, but I mean, ideally, this would be a conversation that wouldn't depend on who does it help and who does it benefit. And ideally, we'd be talking about this in a way where, you know, if you are eligible to vote and you want to vote, you should be able to vote safely. But um, that, unfortunately, is not the world we live in right now. No, you're hopelessly naive. (laughs) (laughs) i do think think it comes down to you know if you're if you're if you're putting something like this in place and you're or you're enforcing something like this your calculation is that it's better for you than it is for the other guys you know and in the context of an election and in the context of the competition of an election you know you're seeking every advantage and you know my first look it's not necessarily always the right answer but my first look whenever something like this comes up is who benefits in this time frame from that policy and right now i think that the republican incumbents think that they benefit from it at least at the national level and somewhat at the state level yeah i guess we'll have to wait and see to november whether there is sort of an influx of younger voters actually going out to vote in person instead and what that means for the end results all right well i will sign us off by telling any voters listening that if you do not have a stamp to turn in your mail-in ballot i have recently learned that usps says your vote should not be returned to you and that they can bill your county for the postage needed for your ballot. So just going to leave us there with a little a little helpful hint for some voters who might be trying to vote by mail and may not have access to or cannot afford stamps. So that is all the time we have for you today. As always, thanks to Spoon for our theme music and to our sponsors this week. Raise Your Hand Texas, the Texas McCombs School of Business, the Poinsett Firm, and Methodist Healthcare Ministries. On behalf of Alex, Ross, and Matthew, and our producer, Michael Ray, this is Alexa. Thanks for listening.